Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. There are two types of crises. Crisis one, it's immediate, acute, you know, think uh, a natural disaster or terrorist attack. Crisis two, the slow-moving variety, think climate change or democratic backsliding. But somehow, there is a crisis happening right now at this very moment, as you hear my voice, that is both. It's Iran's nuclear program. It's taken us decades to get to this point, where Iran could be weeks away from building a nuclear weapon. And it may only take an instant for one side to miscalculate and start a war. And yet, because it's been so slow moving, such a persistent threat for so long, we've barely talked about it. It just seems like business as usual. But that's exactly why I wanted to bring on Ellie Garen Maya. She is the deputy director of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a leading Iran watcher who regularly contributes to the Washington Post and Foreign Policy magazine. And best of all, she joins me next. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show. So I want to start with a number. Um, or a percent, I guess, and that's that's 84%. What's the significance of 84%? Well, this is um, the number of uh, percentage of highly enriched uranium that international monitors have detected inside Iranian nuclear facilities. And the reason why a lot of experts who have been watching Iran's nuclear program for decades now are very alarmed by this is that it's the highest ever um, enriched uranium that's being detected inside Iran. And it's puts Iran essentially much more closer to what's called nuclear weapons grade material than we've ever seen under any uh, US president. So that's why the world is alarmed. That's why nuclear experts are alarmed. And that's why the chief of the so-called IAEA, the international agency that monitors nuclear facilities around the world was just in Tehran in recent days to try and partially get to the bottom of why these particles were detected inside Iran. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that that nuclear weapons grade uranium uh, is enriched at about 90 percent. So we're at 84 Uh, from 84 percent enrichment. What's the breakout time to a usable nuclear warhead fitted to a ballistic missile capable of reaching targets outside Iran? Okay, well, let's take that in a couple of uh, different steps. Um, First of all, um, there are many different ways to calculate this so-called breakout time. Um, U.S. assessments recently uh, put it at 12 days, uh, which is the length of time taken for Iran to essentially have enough materials for one nuclear bomb. Um, Others have put the number shorter, less than a week. Um, But there are a lot of different things in what's called this Rubik's Cube of nuclear activities that can affect uh, this timeline. But we know essentially that this is the shortest ever timeline that we faced um, with Iran's nuclear capabilities. And it's important to point out that under the 2015 nuclear deal, which President Obama signed into, And this timeline was actually extended to roughly 12 months. So we've dropped from 12 months to 12 days as essentially a direct consequence 
of President Trump withdrawing from a nuclear deal that was working and delivering. So that's, you know, on the timeline. But what's important for your listeners to know is that it does take much longer than those 12 days or, or, or a series of days to go from breakout to actually being able to weaponize and, um, as you said, you know, fix the nuclear warhead onto a missile that's usable or have enough uh, cascades of this nuclear material for several bombs, which is what you need essentially for a fully, um, you know, operational nuclear weapons program. And estimates for that are in the long months to years. So it would be somewhere between um, nine months is the shortest estimate I've seen, uh, two years is on the upper range. Um, so essentially there are those that say that even if Iran does get to break out, there is enough time for the world to react uh, because it will still take time for it to weaponize. But the point is, I think, uh, amongst nuclear experts and many countries around the world that are very concerned by Iran's nuclear activities is that Iran should not be allowed to get to that breakout stage whatsoever. You mentioned the nuclear deal. What level of enrichment was allowed under the terms of the 2015 deal? Far less than what we have today, which was, uh, you know, we now have seen particles detected at 84%. It's important to know that Iran hasn't accumulated to that extent. Um, it's accumulating at 60%. But that 2015 deal put a cap of 3.67%, which, as you can see, is dwarfed by the numbers that we have today. What what sort of activities are possible at 3.67%? Well, 3.67%, again, is just one of the indicators that help the IAEA determine that Iran's nuclear activities are solely and exclusively for civilian peaceful use. And so those sort of percentages are the types that can, for example, be used for um, nuclear energy, for civilian nuclear energy use. They can be used, for example, in, in the Tehran research reactor, which is used for medical isotopes. So th these are, again, peaceful uses uh, for enriched uranium. And the nuclear deal put a lot of inspection and monitoring on Iran's nuclear activities to ensure uh, that in addition to those caps on enrichment, other activities that Iran was carrying out was also exclusively for peaceful use. And sadly, as a result of, of degrading that deal and Iran's obligations under that deal, uh, we now have far less monitoring and oversight over what's happening inside Iran today. So we, we have a pretty sizable gulf here between where Iran is in terms of enrichment and what sort of activities are possible with the uranium that it's stockpiled and where Iran would have been if the nuclear deal had held. So can you remind us, how did we get here? I mean, the nuclear deal, otherwise known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, probably the least descriptive diplomatic acronym in history, is viewed by a lot of people as a landmark nonproliferation initiative. Why did it fall apart? I mean, it's a it's a very sad and uh, bitter uh, tale uh, of how we ended up here. I I was someone who uh, was watching uh, nuclear diplomacy at the time, um, and 
really, uh, it was the election of President Trump in 2016 um, that um, threw this agreement under the bus because he campaigned on a promise uh, of what he had said was a, you know, to undo a disastrous deal done by the Obama administration. And so, you know, as soon as he was elected in November 2016, uh, this agreement, which only came into force, by the way, in January of 2016, um, was really put under question. And so we, we had a deal that was only enforced fully and in a healthy condition for, you know, um, less than one year uh, before it was put under question. But for that one year, it was being implemented very, very well on, on both the Iranian side and the Western side. It was perhaps one of the very few agreements, uh, international agreements with Iran that included the West, which Iran was abiding by fully, and it was being uh, verified that it was uh, being implemented by international monitors. And when President Trump came in, um, you know, he spent um, a few months um, trying to push for what he called a bigger, better deal, uh, which was essentially aimed at getting Iran to concede uh, not just on the nuclear issue, which this deal was um, exclusively focused on, but on a range of issues to do with Iran's uh, domestic affairs, to do with Iran's regional activities. And this was just a non-starter uh, with Iran, uh, which viewed America as a long-term adversary. And so by 2018, despite major and vocal pushback by US allies in Europe, uh, President Trump decided to withdraw the United States from this historic deal. And not only that, but to impose essentially the harshest sanctions framework that has ever been imposed on any country by the United States. Uh, while, by the way, Iran was still implementing its obligations uh, for almost a year after the US withdrew. And it was only when the United States basically moved in to really throttle Iran's oil exports, which were a major area of income uh, for, um, uh, for Iran, that Iran basically made the decision that it was going to start uh, what it called non-compliance with its obligations under the deal. Uh, because for Iran, it gave a period of time to see if the deal could work without the US being a participant. And really, it became clear that actually the power of U.S. sanctions were so extensive um, that this deal was very much crippled uh, without the U.S. being a member of it. And so really that those those years under Trump um, hollowed out the agreement from both the U.S. side and the Iranian side to the extent that when President Biden came into office, um, what was left was essentially an architecture for an agreement that was empty inside. Um, and the hope was that with Biden coming back and the Democrats promising to re-engage with the agreement, um, that we could quickly and swiftly move back into what was called a clean compliance or compliance. But sadly, since uh, President Biden came in, there's been a series of mistakes made by both the US and Iran. And increasingly, I would say the Europeans, that has made it almost impossible uh, to envisage that clean return to the agreement. How would you rate the success of this sanctions program, what, what has been billed as the maximum pressure campaign? You know, wasn't part of that model premised on the idea that if you make life so miserable for the average Iranian, they'll rise up against their government and either force a regime change or at least change regime behavior? 
I mean, did the protest last year suggest that that strategy is working? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I, I've been watching sanctions for, for some time now, and it's it's very hard to uh, determine what success is, and it partially depends on what the goal of those who impose the sanctions were to, be, to, to start with. So, you know, Iran has been under U.S. sanctions for over four decades. Since the, uh, the revol- revolution in 79, Iran has come under different kind of avalanches of sanctions packages by the U.S. To the extent that right now, um, you know, I'd argue Iran is the most sanctioned economy on the planet. Um, but has the, you know, ha- have the 40 years plus of, of sanctions uh, fundamentally changed the behavior of Iranian decision makers? I would say there's a big question mark over that, whether it's actually gone in the positive direction. I'd argue that the maximum pressure campaign, particularly by the Trump administration, um, has contributed in part to the hardening of Iranian domestic politics and foreign policy, to the the to the deficit of what the West wants. And also, you know, the question of regime change, a lot of people would say, maybe not President Trump, but a lot of people around him, like, for example, uh, John Bonton, who came into his office, uh, Pompeo, who was both CIA director and um, the Secretary of State, that these people have been pushing for regime change in Iran for, for decades and years. And then that was really the ultimate goal for them of this maximum pressure campaign. Well, we're now beyond the Trump administration and well into the Biden administration that has more or less continued the maximum pressure sanctions. But have we had regime change? No. Um, have we had the most, um, you know, challenging series of protests inside Iran, which are um, demonstrating a uh, you know, big revolutionary sentiment amongst the people on the ground. Yes, we have. Um, But we are not yet seeing any indication that the apparatus of particularly the security system in Iran is anywhere near crumbling or that we are seeing major defections or that um, there are signs of the the political elite um, at the top that control power um, engaged in major infighting over decisions. So right now, despite the severe challenges that are being posed to the economy uh, by US sanctions and also the the bottom-up pressure from society, both on political issues and economic issues, um, are presenting real fundamental challenges uh, to Iran's leaders. But whether that's going to um, push the Iranian decision makers to concede on a range of issues from nuclear to regional to human rights, I have real doubts over that. And whether these, um, you know, both external pressures and internal pressures are going to suddenly cause regime change, um, it, it could. I'm not saying it's out of the question, but right now as someone who is watching the indicators of, of what's going on in Iran, we're not seeing um, very visible indicators that Iran is moving in the direction of regime change. On that point, uh, the restrictive news environment in Iran has obviously limited reporting on the protests. Are they still going on? Um, yes, the protests are still going on. 
actually every Friday um, in um, the southern region of Iran, which is the majority um, Arab uh, minorities and the Sunni minorities of the country. Um, after the Friday sermon prayers in the mosque, there are huge protests that are conducted every Friday. And it's it's very interesting that, you know, the, the, the pulse of the protests at the moment are amongst, um, you know, some of the most religious communities um, in the country. Whereas, you know, in the West, a lot of the media reporting is about um, uh, very much the kind of urban secular protests that are happening in the country. But it's, I think, very fundamental and important that actually, um, you know, some of the m- most religious areas of the country, including, for example, the city of Qom, has become the kind of new epicenters of protests. And Iran is uh, is no stranger to protests. You know, since 1979, um, there have been waves of protests related to socioeconomic issues, political issues, related to um, uh, election rigging, allegations of election rigging, at least. And, you know, if, every week, I think there are... Um, events that are happening in the country that could very well trigger a new wave. So, for example, in in recent days and weeks, there has been a major public um, uproar, rightly so, over what seem to be coordinated, targeted uh, attacks against school children across the country. We, we don't exactly know from the reporting um, what is the cause or who's behind it, but there is widespread allegation of so-called poisoning of school children across um, multiple provinces in the country since November that have um, impacted hundreds of, of school children, both both girls and boys, but majority girls. And this has led to, you know, what is essentially a national emergency situation in the country where parents are too afraid to send their children to school, where there have been fresh protests over the last week uh, by parents um, to to call for accountability and, um, uh, you know, transparency in what's going on um, in, in this remit. And there is, you know, a real sense, I think, of distrust between the the society and the state over whether state authorities are able to really push back against um, these incidents. So, yes, I think that, um, you know, Iran is going to be subject to waves of protests going forward, to waves of labor strikes. Um, And I think that this is forcing a very critical conversation inside the country, um, despite, um, you know, the hundreds of journalists that are getting arrested, um, the into the thousands of people that have been detained over the course of these protests since September. But yet you are seeing um, this debate really um, be the you know, be pushed to the surface. And it's it's not a genie that can be put back into the bottle. And it's a real, I think, um, challenge to the legitimacy of the state uh, inside Iran, how they cope and respond to this going forward. Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer, recorded through a Best Buy microphone, and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. 
Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. So you've been a proponent of maintaining dialogue with Iran while the the protests are ongoing. The the so-called, I think you called it the, the walk and chew gum approach. Um, is that possible to do? Is it possible to continue to negotiate with the Iranian regime without undermining the protests? So look, I I think that we are in a very um, dangerous and critical moment uh, with Iran. And we need a political off-ramp to de-escalate the situation before it's too late. We're in a scenario where um, the the new government in Israel of uh, President Netanyahu, uh, we're seeing leaks, you know, weekly that his government is considering military strikes against Iranian nuclear facilities to respond to that very advanced stage of the nuclear program that I was speaking about earlier. And we are seeing, unlike in the past, and I would say unlike even under the Trump administration, very little indication that the US administration or Europeans are actually stepping in to avert Israel from taking what could be a very, very counterproductive move um, to to conduct uh, military strikes for the first time, you know, in this kind of uh, military fashion um, inside the country. Now, Israel has been conducting um, drone strikes and sabotage attacks. Um, you know, there's been widespread reports of this over recent years. But to conduct a major military um, strike against nuclear facilities in order to set them back, that would be a new move that could frankly spark regional war across the Middle East. And what happens in Iran is not going to just stay in Iran. Iran is a big country in a very messy part of the world. It has uh, numerous land and sea borders. This is not North Korea. You can't just isolate Iran. It has a network of allies across the Arab world, which it could trigger um, as part of its um, response uh, mechanism to Israel and U.S. strikes, potentially, if the U.S. partakes in these. Um, and, you know, it's it's actually, ironically, regional actors in the Middle East, such as, for example, the United Arab Emirates, the Omanis, the Kuwaitis, the Iraqis, um, that are pushing the West and pushing their own governments towards dialogue with Iran right now to try and calm tensions. And to go back to your original point of, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time, I don't think that engaging your adversary at a point where we're on potentially the brink of a military confrontation um, needs to equate with a free pass on human rights. This is, you know, an argument that actually, funnily enough, a lot of uh, Western-backed autocrats use um, to try and, uh, you know, get points uh, from the from the United States in their partnership. It's important to note that a lot of um, American partners and allies have very questionable records on human rights. And yet um, the US and Europe are, um, you know, quite open to providing major arms deals, major economic deals with these countries. And there are many, many adversaries around the world that the US 
has a direct line of communication for diplomacy. You know, most notably China, uh, most notably even Russia at the you know peak of the Ukraine war. You still have the U.S. Secretary of State meeting with his Russian counterpart um, for you know conflict de-escalation talks, and you know this is this is something I think we need to step out of because we have adversaries. That means we should stop talking, and you know this is not a recipe that's conducive for Western interests. Uh, we need to have a uh, political solution to try and contain Iran's nuclear activities. You know, the only time that we have seen Iran uh, rein back its nuclear program in a major way has been through that 2015 nuclear deal that was a negotiated settlement. It hasn't been through Israeli sabotage attacks. It hasn't been through military strikes. And Again, also, in terms of the domestic situation, in my view, each time we have seen um, the US invoke different versions of containment policy or maximum pressure policies, policies that, that essentially shut the door to diplomacy, this is a time when Iranian hardline forces shut down the country, securitize the country, use very, very repressive forces, cut the country off the internet, um, you know, detain thousands. And I think the more we cut off Iran from the Western side, the more Iran will also be able to cut off its own people and securitize the country more and repress its own people. Let's say like um, a North Korea model. And imagine if Iran is able to do that while also having nuclear weapons under its um, under its defenses. And then I think it's going to become very, very difficult to try and influence Iran's uh, you know, human rights conditions in a better, more progressive way, or, or to try and actually help civil society actors, the, at least the very few remaining ones inside the country, to actually push for bottom-up change. And my sense is that, you know, this is something that um, we need much more dialogue and engagement with. And I understand that it's very hard to do this with Iranian civil society inside the country. Um, but, you know, there are many who have contacts. And I think that there is a, a, a big debate inside these actors inside Iran about whether more sanctions or military conflict is really the right answer or the right recipe for them to have the the society in which to flourish or not. Let's talk about the Iranian political environment. We know that Iranian willingness to engage with the West is is driven by its domestic political environment. You know, there's this relative balance of power between hardliners and moderates in the regime. Who has the upper hand coming out of the protests? Well, I think it's without question that it's the hardline forces inside the country. And, you know, I did some studies during the Trump administration on how uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear deal, how the the economic sanctions that were imposed under the Trump administration really shifted the debate inside the country away from the forces that have been proposing engagement and deal-making with the West um, towards essentially a much more hard-lined, what's called the resilience um, approach of resisting and becoming resilient to Western pressure. And so, um, in my view, um, the most important, it's not he's not the only uh, player, but probably the most important player in the system, uh, Iran's supreme leader, um, has been um, pushed and, um, you know, essentially 
influenced towards a much more hardline stance um, after what was seen as, you know, a, a major betrayal by the US through its withdrawal from the nuclear deal. And those forces that have now um, tightened themselves around the supreme leader are very much the forces that believe that Iran um, that that the natural allies of Iran lie in the east, uh, mainly Russia and China. That Iran needs to work with these actors to build what they call immunity to Western pressure and sanctions, and that there is now a real convergence of interest between Beijing, Moscow, Iran, and other um, non-U.S. aligned countries to try and push back against um, what they view as um, U.S hegemony in the region. Having said that, I still think one of the things that we've seen visibly come out of the protests, recent protests inside Iran, is how dynamic the political situation inside Iran is, how much when you think that you have completely shut down um, one aspect of society, it sort of um, seeps out uh, into the public domain again. There has been a real, um, I would say, very public and vocal debate inside Iran um, about, for example, Iran's relationship with Russia and China, about the repercussions of Iran shutting the door to the West um, if it doesn't um, go back to restoring the nuclear deal and um, lifting uh, at least or easing um, sanctions. And, and so I do think while um, let's say the so-called reformists in the country, um, and you know many would say that they don't exist and they have never existed. But I do think that there is diversity in the political debate inside Iranian decision-making elite. Uh, that even though this more uh, reform pro. Western engagement camp has been really marginalized and sidelined in recent years, they are still there. And one byproduct of the recent protests, we don't know if this is the case yet, but one byproduct has been that those voices are being increasingly, I think, reintroduced back into the political decision-making space uh, because of a sense that actually uh, Iranian leaders have simultaneously shot themselves in the foot and the head, that they can't manage the growing domestic uh, pressure cooker that's building, as well as the external pressure cooker that's now building with both Europe and the United States very firmly um, opposing Iran on a, on a spectrum of areas. And that something really has to give. And I think on that point, um, there is a push from inside Iran, uh, that at least, let's say, on, on the nuclear um, issue, Iran needs to create a, a de-escalation pathway. And perhaps, you know, we have to see um, what comes out concretely, but perhaps the recent visit of the IAEA's chief to Iran, uh, Rafael Grossi, um, has paved the way for, for some steps towards de-escalation. Does Rafael Grossi's visit, and we've heard comments uh, from the EU's chief diplomat, uh, Joseph Borrell, does that indicate that there's some political appetite in the EU to resume negotiations and in the US too, perhaps? So look, I think it's, um, it's been clear that since September, for a number of reasons, um, 
all forms of diplomacy with Iran have have been on ice. Um, and, and those reasons are, you know, primarily, I would say, the, the protests inside Iran, but also, um, you know, in, in the summer, it became clear that uh, Iran had started to deliver drone systems to Russia, which ended up being used in Ukraine. And that caused major destruction and civilian death, according to Ukrainian sources. And this was really seen as an affront to European security. And finally, and and perhaps, um, you know, most critically here, um, the West and Iran were very close to agreeing on a deal to restore the nuclear agreement um, in August. And the widespread conclusion in the West is that Iran fundamentally could not come to a um, final decision about whether it wanted to go back into the deal or not. And part of that, I think, major question mark for Iran has been because it doesn't trust the US to deliver on sanctions relief. And even if it can trust the remaining two years of a Biden administration, it cannot trust that a, you know, next U.S. administration, which could potentially be a Republican, could potentially even be President Trump, um, that they would not go back to, you know, maximum pressure and revoking. So there is this, I think, quite rational debate inside Iran about whether, given all of the nuclear advances it has made over the recent years, given all of the costs it has paid in terms of resisting uh, and and coping, let's say, and muddling through um, the economic sanctions that have been placed on it since Trump withdrew, whether it was worthwhile, you know, giving up what they view as nuclear leverage for potentially a two-year agreement. And, you know, it's it's really important to remember that in 2015, when Iran signed this agreement, they thought that this was a, a long, durable deal that was going to pave the way um, for a broader set of deals with with the West. And instead, as I said, turned out to be, you know, a deal that lived less than a year, essentially, before Trump came, was elected into office. So I think there are major question marks in Tehran um, about whether, uh, you know, going back to the 2015 de- uh, agreement is worthwhile. And therefore, there are major questions also in, in Europe and the West and, and sort of the United States about whether it's worth expending all of the political capital that's necessary um, for the West to go back into the deal. Um, So today we're in this bizarre situation where I'm not sure that the European governments who are party to that deal still, and the United States, which is the most important player here, is willing to go back to the 2015 deal, even if Iran comes and says, I've dropped all my demands that I made in September and I'm ready to go back to the agreement that we put on the table in August. Let's move forward. I'm not sure the West can agree to that. And, you know, partially, uh, uh, you know, a major reason for that is because the atmosphere between Iran and the West has been poisoned so significantly by by the issue of the protests in Iran and and the brutal crackdown and also Iran's support you know to Russia as as the only uh, major country that's providing military support um to Russia has really poisoned the well here for diplomacy but 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 I'm going to end with a more optimistic note I still think that there are routes for having um a the start of a process 
for a bigger diplomatic sort of arrangements on the nuclear issue, but that the most likely place to begin is through very uh, small confidence building signals, not even you know, a coordinated deal, but signals from the United States and Iran respectively that they are looking to roll back this maximum pressure train that they're both on. Um, because I think right now, the atmosphere in both Tehran and the US is very unlikely to allow for the full restoration of the nuclear deal. But I think everyone understands that unless there is some small arrangement to de-escalate the situation, we're headed towards a crisis point. And so that's why I think someone like Joseph Borrell, who is the coordinator of um, the nuclear deal, is trying to look for creative ways um, to de-escalate the situation. So you're saying it's not possible to get back to the, the JCPOA framework. What is possible? In this moment, so I, I'm not saying that forever that that it's impossible, but right now I just don't see the political bandwidth in either Tehran, Europe, or DC to expend the sort of political capital domestically that's needed to get that deal restored. So what I do think is possible is smaller um, measures. I'm not even calling them deals at this stage, but measures from both um, the American side and the Iranian side um, that will try and contain the nuclear program inside Iran. So I think there are two main things that are of critical importance on the nuclear side. One is restoring the IAEA's inspection and verification. And essentially what the international monitors have been saying is that there is a real gap in knowledge, there is a data deficit over what Iran is doing on a daily basis. And that means that there is a lot more room for error, for mistakes, for cheating uh, from Iran's side. And we need to basically restore uh, the intelligence of the IAEA on the ground. And a second area is essentially to reduce um, the Iranian enrichment levels and stockpile of highly enriched uranium that exists in the country. And I think, you know, when you speak to nuclear experts, these are the two main areas that they're saying, you know, there is a kind of red alert at the moment over um, Iran's nuclear activities. Um, if there are steps and measures that particularly the IAEA can agree on with Iran to roll these areas back and increase the verification. I think that would be a, a, a realistically great start in a positive direction. But of course, in return for this, Iran is going to expect a um, you know reciprocal move um, from the West. And really the area that I see that most uh, likely is essentially economic relief. I'm not even calling it, you know, major sanctions easing or all back, but allowing Iran a you know, access to a degree of economic relief that is not going to make or break the Islamic Republic of Iran's ruling or elite, but that it indicates to Iran from the West that there is a reciprocal quid pro quo for the steps that it's taking also. And, you know, some of the areas that have been highlighted is essentially, for example, giving Iran access to its own money that is frozen abroad for exclusively humanitarian trade with um, with um, third party actors, for example, in South Korea or in Europe. 
or essentially using um, U.S. allies in the Middle East, for example, Qatar, the UAE, Oman, uh, to provide Iran economic relief in ways that is politically unviable for the United States to do so. But for these regional partners to be able to do that, they are going to need a degree of green light from the United States, particularly in terms of sanctions enforcement, to be able to do that. And again, this isn't a recipe to solve any of the major problems with Iran. It's just a recipe to step back from the brink and start putting in place a political roadmap uh, that can get us to a, a, a better endpoint than, than where we're headed today. Okay, Ellie, we started this conversation with a percent, so let's finish with one too. Uh, how confident are you that a deal is still possible? Zero to 100. It's possibly the worst question you can ask in a house. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got to be either zero or 100. You can't be anywhere in between. I see. I see. Um, you know, it kind of, my, my estimates of this change on a weekly basis uh, when I watch Iran. If you'd asked me this question in August, I'd say, you know, we were 70% there to a deal. Now it's, you know. We're also, for the listeners to know, we're recording this on a Monday. So uh, Ellie might be feeling a little bit of uh, early week pessimism. So take everything she says with a grain of salt. <laughs> It's it's a it's a really um, it's a really turbulent file. Um, sadly, right now, I unfortunately put the risk of um, crisis point higher than a deal. And you know, I think that the Biden administration and perhaps some um, decision makers in Tehran had been hoping that they could just kind of kick the can down the road and have what people call is this no deal, no crisis moment where you extend this as long as possible, even perhaps to the next U.S. elections. But I think that the messaging that we are getting um, from inside Israel at the moment, particularly with all of the domestic troubles that are facing President Netanyahu, is that, you know, Israel is not going to sit on its hands while Iran's nuclear program tick-tocks along. And if there isn't a viable diplomatic path on offer that could try and curtail Iran's nuclear advancements and the risks, you know, the, the chances of that are getting lower and lower by the day, then I think there's a much higher chance than ever before that we're headed towards, you know, a crisis military point on, on this file. Well, Elliot, I think uh, we all hope that you're wrong on that point, but thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure, Ethan. Thanks so much for tuning in. This was a really interesting conversation for me. Look, I mean, I have strong opinions on a lot of things, but I think one of the reasons I wanted to have Ellie on was because I genuinely don't know how I feel about this issue or know what the right balance between pressure and dialogue is. If you have thoughts on this conversation or if there are other issues you want to hear about, write into me at ethan at internationalintrigue.io. And if you like this show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.